us back to the reading of his word. So please, if you would, stand together with me. Hear now the word of our Lord. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and the ordination offering, and the sacrifice of peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this opportunity to spend time um, examining the Gospels and, and uh, learning more and more about them that we might be better able to serve you and uh, 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 profess you and confess you. Bless this time. Uh, now, Lord, we pray that um, you would use it to grow us and mature us and enable us to become the servants that you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> At the beginning of Christ's third year of ministry, Jesus Christ asked his disciples two very important questions. John, or Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came to the, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they gave a couple of answers as to what people were saying about Jesus. And then he turned directly to them and asked them, but who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? There's no greater question in all the world. The answer to that question determines a person's time and eternity. It determines heaven and hell. First John chapter 4 said, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that does not confess Jesus meaning who he is, who he really is, is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Brothers and sisters, it is crucial that we have an answer to that question. Who is Christ? And that, no doubt, is why God gave us four gospels, um, four gospel witnesses as to the who of Jesus Christ. Eighty-four chapters. I read in Leviticus to begin with, about the sacrificial system. There it referenced six sacrifices. In total, there were 11, and those 11 could be private or public. They could be personal or corporate. They could be commanded or votive or free. You take all of that and you go, man, we got a good 30, 40 different types of sacrifices. Why so many, God? The answer is because it takes that many to accurately picture the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, when it comes to the person work of Jesus Christ, God just didn't give 30 or 40 sacrifices. He gave us, again, as I just said, 84, is it 84? 89 chapters. Four gospel witnesses to, so that no man, any person reading could understand who Jesus Christ is. And understanding that is the difference between life and death. 
And so this morning, I want to uh, continue as we um, approach our series on the life of Christ. I want to, uh, um, one more week, spend time introducing you to the gospel witness. So if, I, if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew, and we'll be diving in, into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just as by way of introduction. To begin with, let me uh, uh, begin by, um, um, as I've got it there, talking about the authors. There is a unanimity amongst uh, conservative, reformed, evangelical scholars in terms of who wrote the Gospels based upon internal uh, a testimony, what they said, how they wrote, as well as the earliest testimony of the early church all agree as to who wrote these Gospels. The first Gospel is written by the Apostle Matthew. He was a tax collector. That will have bearing upon us as we look at his gospel. He was a tax collector. Um, the second one, Mark, was written by John Mark, the one who abandoned Christ, or uh, I'm sorry, abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. That's the same guy, Mark. He, after he abandoned them, you recall Barnabas went after him um, after their first missionary journey, um, brought him back, and then... History tells us that Mark then worked very closely with Peter. Then you got Luke, most likely the only Gentile writer of Scripture. Luke, most likely a Gentile uh, physician who worked and accompanied Paul on many of his uh, journeys. Very closely did he work with Paul. So he was the physician. Then lastly, you have the Apostle John, who's the disciple whom Christ loved. Right? So when you read John, he doesn't reference himself. He says the, the disciple whom Christ loved, X, Y, Z. Those are the four gospel writers. Those are the four people who penned these gospels. Now, you're probably aware of the phrase uh, synoptic gospels. What's a synoptic gospel? And how is it different from John? I mean, if a synoptic gospel gives the synopsis of Christ's life, isn't that what John does? So why isn't John part of the synoptic witness? Well, the reason why is because the synoptic doesn't mean a synopsis, okay? It comes from two, two words, the word soon, which means uh, together or at the same time, and optic, which means to see. So basically, the synoptic gospels are gospels that, were, that emerged, that were witnessed to, that came uh, to the front about the same time. Between 55 and 65 AD, the, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written and given to the people of God. So, that's what, so when we talk about the synoptic witness, we're talking about those three gospels. Because 30 years later, John, having the ability to have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke filled in and gave a, a very distinct message with regards to um, his uh, gospel. So though that's the authors. That brings us to the question of genre. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, John, what's their genre? Well, first of all, what's a genre? A genre is simply a literary type. It's a type of literature. So for example, if you took a, cl a class in literature in college, high school, you'll be looking at different genres. You've got poetry, right? You've got... Um, explanation, you've got different things, a fiction, okay, different genres. Well, the Bible is filled with genres, okay? For example, you have the genre of narrative. Listen to John, uh, Gen uh, Genesis 12. 
A narrative is closest to what we might think of when you think of a history book, but narrative is not intended to be like a history book. It's simply common speech, common uh, description, Genesis 12. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had, had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. It's just plain speech. This is what's going on. It's descriptive speech. That's narrative. Well, guess what? We have narrative in the Gospels. Uh, John, if you want to turn there, I know you'll have it behind me, I would guess. But John, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, we read, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised up from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was, was one of those reclining at the table with him. So just plain speech. All right. Second genre that you'll see in Scripture that you also see in the Gospels is poetry. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 2. Let me read it. For the choir director, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he and he. I'm inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps full, um, firm. Poetry. If you follow that, there's a cadence to it. And it turns out in the Psalter, there's seven different types of poetry expression in that Psalter. You've got lamentations, you've got hymns, you've got thanksgivings, you've got different kinds. Um, um, I'm in precatory psalms. They're all there. Well, likewise, brothers and sisters, you've got poetry in the Gospels. Um, turn turn to, to Luke chapter 1. Um, in your Bibles. Luke 1, and you can read some more poetry. Um, this is the uh, Magnificat. It's the Song of Mary. So Mary has just been told um, about the, the, the baby dwelling within her, um, and she then goes into song, and she wrote the, or she said these words, my soul exalts the, uh, of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of the bond slave. Poetry. We also have wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 8, 34 through 35, an example of wisdom literature. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts, for he who finds me finds life. It's talking about wisdom, wisdom speaking here, and obtains a favor from the Lord. So wisdom speaks. It says, blessed are you who find me. You go to John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. You know this text very well, the Sermon on the Mount. You have the same thing, wisdom literature. Matthew 5, verses 2 and following. And opening his mouth, he began to teach him, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. That is wisdom literature. Um, you look at um, didactic uh, literature, Ezekiel 18, uh, 31, found in Scripture, 18, uh, 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, for, they will, for, um, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So didactic is teaching, exhortation. Guys, do this and live. You see that in Scripture. Well, you see that in the Gospels as well. We're in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Notice what Christ says there. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So once again, you see those genres mirrored 
in the Gospels. And lastly, there's apocalyptic literature. Listen to Joel chapter 3. Apocalyptic literature is literature uh, describing the end times. Um, Joel 3. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from uh, Jerusalem. Well, that same literature, that same um, meter, that same genre is found in the Gospels. Mark this time. Mark chapter 13. Um, verses 24 through 25, we read these words. But in those days, there, um, in those days after uh, the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in uh, the heavens will be shaken. So you have any genre you've got in Scripture, you've got in the gospel. So which raises the question, what is a gospel? So we're going to be studying these. We need to understand what is a gospel. Is, is the gospel history? No, but it contains history. Is it poetry? No, it contains po- poetry. Is it wisdom literature? No, it contains it. Um, is it narrative? I guess that'd be the same as what I just said by way of history. No, it contains it. Well, then what is it? If it's none of those, what is it? A gospel is a brand new literary type. Okay, let me define it. By definition, a gospel is a presentation of Christ against the backdrop of God's redemptive work. What is a gospel? It is a portrait, a presentation of Jesus Christ in the context of the discussion of God's work of redemption. That's a gospel. And that's so important that you and I understand this. And the reason why is, is, is if you put the Gospels side by side, you'll find that they don't agree on the, on the order of the history. Wait a second. Matthew said this event takes place here, and John says it's here. They contradict each other. Brothers and sisters, they don't contradict each other. A Gospel is a portrait of Jesus Christ. So each Gospel writer wrote to present a specific message and thus a specific portrait. In their minds, they wanted us to see this facet of Christ. So you got this diamond, different facets. Matthew says, I want you to look at Christ from this angle. And you're going to learn all about Jesus Christ. Mark says, no, 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 I want you to look at Christ from, from this angle. Okay, and hence, they wrote, thus they gave a specific uh, portrait as it relates to Christ. And whatever event, teaching, proverb, miracle, or parable that was necessary to support the author's thesis was utilized without the concern of the rules of history, poetry, wisdom literature, apocalyptic. They didn't care about, about a, a, um, an historical narrative. That's not what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. They're not. They don't care about the rules of poetry. Whatever serves their end to, to shine the light of, of, of our gaze upon a facet or a portrait of Jesus Christ, that's what they did. And that's why this is a brand new genre. You don't look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and go, let's follow the history. You don't. 
right? You look at Matthew to to, uh, say, what does Matthew teach us about Jesus Christ? Mark, what does Mark teach us about Jesus Christ? Luke, John, that's what you're asking, okay? What's the therefore of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's a brand new genre. That being uh, uh, said, in your bulletin, I have placed a, uh, um, a harmony, or I've given you all a harmony. If you would grab that real, uh, quickly, this is going to, uh, to be what, um, the, if you want to study along, which I hope that you do, this is how you'll study along, because this is what I'm going to follow. Um, this comes from Lorraine uh, Bettner's The Harmony of, of the Gospels. And in the, the coming week, months, and years, we'll be walking away right down this line. Now, I, I realized I went into to two pages. I originally formatted this for a book. Um, I went into two pages. And if I'm going to go to two pages, I should spread it out and make it bigger. So I'll produce another one of these spread out and bigger so you can read it without a magnifying glass. But this is the order. A couple things I want to point out uh, to you. Number one, would you notice John, the list of John? John is the only gospel writer he gives us the first year of Jesus Christ's ministry. Without John, we would have never known that Jesus ministered for three years. Okay? Secondly, would you notice um, each of the areas, um, Judah and Galilee, and on the far right, um, Judah and uh, Perea, um, each of those tell us the focus of his ministry at that moment, which will have an impact. When we go to Galilee, Jesus Christ has gone to Galilee of the Gentiles. Think about that. When you're dealing with biblical passages with Jesus in Galilee, he's there to do one thing, to share the truth of the Lord with both Jew and Gentile. Okay, so you see the minister heart of Jesus Christ in that entire thing. So his, his um, full second year into his third is all in Galilee. And then the last uh, six months of Jesus Christ's life, um, overlapping year three on the back side of your first page, the last six months um, is in Judah and Perea. Um, and so you, you can get that, that uh, flow. Um, again, we'll be using this. Now, having said that, I want to give you a caution. It's a caution I need to hear very much so, and I'm very mindful of it. Because Matthew had a very specific presentation of Jesus, as we'll see. Mark had one, Luke has one, and John has one. It is ill-advised, as they say, to preach through the life of Christ, which is what I'm going to do. It's ill-advised to do what John Calvin did. If you look, look at John Calvin's commentaries on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you'll be, you'll be horribly disappointed if you want to go to, to Matthew 5, because you've got to find it in the harmony. <laughs> he doesn't do a commentary on Matthew. He does a commentary on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as it goes through. Okay, And so um, ill-advised, unless you and I keep in our minds, the forefront of our minds, when we're studying Matthew, what is Matthew's portrait? When we're studying Mark, what is Mark's portrait? Luke, what is Luke's portrait? J uh, John, what is John's? If we keep those in our minds, we'll do justice to the apostolic witness as it's given to us in the Gospels. That being said, let's dive into their witness, their, the presentation and their purpose for writing. So for that, we're going to start in, in Matthew. Okay, so the Gospel of Matthew. Why did Matthew write Matthew? Okay, Matthew being a tax collector, what was his aim? His aim clearly was his audience that he wrote to was a Jewish audience. This book uh, supports that just black and white. 
Okay, so he's writing to a Jewish audience throughout his gospel, primarily throughout his gospel. You'll see this language in other ones, but primarily in his gospel, you'll read phrases like Matthew 1, uh, 22, if you're there, Matthew 1, uh, 22. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled saying, behold, the virgin, right? Um, so he is constantly trying to prove that this man that's being described here fulfills biblical prophecy and the prophecy specifically relating to the Messiah. Now, who's the Messiah? That may be language that, that may be foreign uh, to some of you. The Messiah in scriptures first prophesied about in Genesis 3.15. This Messiah who would, and, 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 and if you know 3. Uh, 15, where Christ or uh, God is giving the curse to Satan um, and the woman and the man for the fall with regards to um, the uh, um, uh, serpent. God, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. That is a, a prophetic um, uh, narrative describing the time's going to come when the seed of the serpent, Satan, okay, will, will render Jesus Christ or the seed of the woman, Christ, a flesh wound. Won't kill him. Okay, now he does die on the cross, but it doesn't keep him down, right? But at the cross, that very same act, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would render a head wound to the uh, serpent. So how is Jesus Christ, the very first prophecy about Jesus Christ, describing him, describing him as a king, as a, va as, as a victor, as someone who's going to fight a battle and win that ba a battle. And that's what the Messiah is. Throughout all of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the, uh, the anointed one, is a king who reigns sovereign. So when you think of all of the scriptures and the comforting scriptures that talk about the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, you're looking at the Messiah. You're looking at this facet. And Matthew is written to demonstrate that's Jesus. Jesus is that. And so uh, some of the theme words. Um, Matthew favors the title Son of David. The other one's going to favor son of man, son of God. In Matthew, it's the son of David. In Matthew, when we look at Jesus Christ, he is always talking about his kingdom. So for example, Matthew chapter 13, if you're there, Matthew 13, 11, to turn there. Matthew 13, he starts telling parables. And the disciples come and say, why do you tell the uh, parables? And Jesus explains them what a parable is and why. And he says in 13, 11, he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Every parable in Matthew is a kingdom parable. All designed to teach us about the regency, the majesty, the glory of our sovereign God. That's Matthew. Okay, it's demonstrating this is a being who is a king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of, of lords. And so we read in Matthew chapter uh, 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What, what, what struck the crowds? Matthew 7, 28. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. See, this isn't a prophet who comes and says, thus says the Lord, right? This isn't a priest 
who comes to serve on behalf of people, this is a majestic king who speaks by divine decree. You have heard it said, but I say. It's a strong statement. Jesus Christ, the picture of Christ in Matthew is the Messiah, this king who reigns and rules uh, supreme. Matthew also involves an inclusio. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple weeks. So I won't define it as much other than to say an inclusio is when a book begins with the, or when a sermon or a passage or a book begins and ends on the same note. Well, Matthew 1, what does Matthew begin with after the uh, ge- uh, genealogy? Well, he'll bear, she'll bear a son. He calls his name Jesus, right? And he'll, uh, why? Because, well, he'll save his people from their sin. You also call him Emmanuel in verse 23. Why? Because he's God with us. Us. Matthew begins by saying, this king, who I'm going to demonstrate to you, is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's with us. How does it end? It's the very last thing you read in Matthew 28, 20. Right? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's, it forms an inclusio. It for, what Matthew is showing us is, is, guys, this king, don't be frightened. Don't run. He's with you. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, this glorious being is with you at all times. That's the whole point. And Ecclesio says everything in between must be understood through this lens. That being is with you. That's the idea of Ecclesio. And lastly, Matthew also being a tax collector um, is therefore has an accountant's mind. All right. And because of that, his gospel placed a high priority on categories over chronology. Hear that. He didn't care about chronology. He cares about categories. Consequently, parables, miracles and sayings are grouped by shared characteristics and not by when the events took place. He didn't care about when they took place. I don't care when they happened. What I care is that you see these miracles and that you hear these parables. That's what's important to Matthew. He wants you to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who reigns supreme and who's with you. That's Matthew. All right. You asked, okay, he's with us. What does that mean, Matthew? If Jesus Christ goes with us, what practically, what difference does that make in my life? Enter Mark. Now we're in Mark. Turn your Bibles to Mark if you, if you would. You can follow along. Mark. In Mark, the, it clearly is written to a Roman audience. All right? There's a lot of reasons for it. I'm not going to go into it. But Mark is written to a Roman audience. And in Rome, they valued power, strength, authority. You think, well, that should be Matthew, Right? The presentation of Mark is not the Messiah. That's Matthew. The presentation of Mark is that this Messiah, this king, who you just saw about in in Matthew, is a servant. The linchpin verse in Mark is Mark 10, 45, where we we read that, that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark is all about the fact that Jesus Christ is a servant. And as a servant, he's a man. His favorite title for Jesus, though he starts with Son of God, Mark start, his first title for Jesus is Son of God, he leaves that quickly. He, his focus in Mark is Son of Man. 
emphasizing, in this case, a messianic title, no doubt, but also a title referencing his humanity. He is the king who's with us, who's a man. He's a human. And so in Mark, we see this, this facet. Second thing about Mark, that if you've read Mark, um, that should stick out to you if you read Mark, is the word euthus, okay? The word immediately. You, have you ever read Mark and went, good night. The guy is, is uh, on, a, on one note, you know? It's time to get off that note there, Mark, because everything is immediately. Mark does not contain the teaching that you get in Matthew, Luke, and John. Okay, so, and that's some of the reason why we think it's, he's stressing the idea of slaves. Slaves don't have a genealogy. There's no genealogy in Mark. Slaves don't teach. They listen. Jesus doesn't teach much in Mark. So you got this, this flavor that, that Jesus is, is a servant, a slave. But immediately, factor that in, immediately tells us Mark does not have time to tell us any details we got to get on to the next event. Immediately he went from there, and immediately he went up from there. Mark is this hustle and bustle and this, this, just, just this massive, if you will, um, 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 uh, what's the word, this tense, um, on the edge of your seat look of Jesus Christ. And you go, why? And yet, that's Mark, sorry. And yet, the last third of Mark focuses on the crucifixion and the suffering. We looked at this when we saw the songs of ascent. Sometimes the way the, the text show is, the, um, um, the message is declared not only by the words, but how it's presented. Mark is um, quick until you get to the passion narratives, and then it slows down. And it gives the reader the sense that Mark is saying, I got to show you he's a servant, but I really, what I want you to really see is his suffering on your behalf. So Mark, the theme of Mark's Messiah, what he wants you to see on this, on this diamond is that Jesus Christ is the servant who, came, who is God, who came from God and came here not to rule, not yet, but to die in your place. And the way the entire gospel reads, it makes you focus on, the, on his suffering. It, it slows down. There's this hurried, hurried, hurried. Now sit down and contemplate and meditate and muse upon your suffering Savior. That's Mark. Um, Let's go to Luke. All right, so Matthew tells us he's the Messiah. He's the biblical fulfillment of every messianic prophecy of this coming king who sits on the throne of David forever and ever. But he's with us. In what way, Matthew? How is he with us? Mark comes along and says, you want to know how? He is a servant who died for your sin. That's how. Luke says, but there's more. Luke is written, but there's no question as to who it's written to. Luke chapter 1, if you go to Luke, if you would, turn with me to Luke. Uh, Luke 1, there's no question as to who Luke is written to. 
Let's read it, Luke 1, 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, the Gentile, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke is written to a Gentile. Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Gentile audience. Now the, the Gentile mind, let's, let's talk about that. The Greek, the Greco-Roman mindset that permeated the ancient world. I talked about this last week, that the worldview of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus Christ came from the Greeks. Rome added order and building and roads and the ability to, to transport. But the, Greek, but the mind is the Greek mind. And what's the Greek mind? The Greek mind is this. There are many men who would be God. Alexander, any of the Caesars. There are many men who would be God. The message of Luke, there's only one God who would be a man. Luke stresses the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's God. Luke, Luke, Luke speaks of Jesus as God. But the emphasis that he wants you to see is on the fact that this God came to serve. You see, how is that different from Mark in this way? Who would, the, who would this king who's with us in Mark serve? Well, the, the, the worthy, right? The wealthy, the powerful, the religious, the upright, the good. That might be our thought. Luke solves that in a hurry. Luke says, oh no. Luke, of all the, the Gospels, is the most intimate, the most genuine, the most, um, it's where, we, it's, uh, the most gentle. How's that? Let me read a couple of, of my things. There's a warm human touch in Luke. The birth stories are much more intimate. The contact that Jesus has with the, the people of his day are more varied and with special emphasis upon women, children, the hurting, and needy. That's Luke. So this, this king, this God who reigns supreme sovereignly over the, the heavens for the rest of eternity came and suffered on the cross to save us from our sin. But who did he save? He say he goes all the way down to the weakest, the neediest, the most ignoble, the most wretched, the outcast. Don't you think that this king's going to come on with heirs? This king, with Luke's witness, is a king who humbles himself and meets us at our need. Christian, have you been following Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you love him? Yes. But have you fallen into sin? I have. And I can't break it. I keep going back to it over and over and over. God must hate me. He must be angry at me. He, he must want to reject me. Luke says, don't you dare think that. Jesus Christ meets us where we are. He doesn't say, fix yourself up and then come to me. He comes down to where you and I live. That's the focus and foci of Luke. Um, but there's the last emphasis in Luke, and that's the emphasis of joy. 
So Luke presents Jesus Christ as this, this God incarnate who, who meets us, who meets the sinner at his place of need unto, unto joy and rejoicing. You see this theme throughout. Notice how Luke ends. Would you notice Luke 24, 50 through 53. This is the ending of Luke. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. He's talking to the disciples. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And you know what they did? They started crying. He said, no, please don't leave us. We don't read that. We'll read it. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Luke would have the sinner. When, when the Messiah of Luke meets the sinner, they walk away praising and leaping, filled with joy and rejoicing over the glory of the greatness of God. Matthew is command. Mark is the servant who died, the emphasis on his sacrificial death. And Luke presents this one sent from God who comes down and wipes our tears and dries our eyes and holds us up and lifts us up. Now, step back a second. Of the threefold office of Jesus Christ, what does Matthew present? King. What does Mark uh, present? Priest. Sacrifice. What does Luke uh, present? Prophet. Who comes down and meets us at our need. Do you see this incredible witness of the Gospels, the synoptics? They were written to proclaim to the world... And it took, again, the, nine, uh, the, the 89 chapters to rightly let people understand. Now, there could be a whole lot more, according to John. All the books in the world couldn't uh, contain this a witness, but they were written to show this witness. Well, you say, well, what about John then? Where does John fit into this? Written 30 years later, aware of the witness and testimony that we have with Jesus Christ. Where does John come in? Well, let's go to John. John 20. Thirty, we read these words. In fact, with John, we don't have any, any question. John is written to everybody, okay? Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks. John is the cleanup. He's, he's, he's batting and forth. He's going to do bases loaded, home run. This is what John is. And he's written to everybody in mind, okay? And what is his message, John 20, 30 through 31? Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. Let you know about the, the genre. What has been written here was not written to give you an historical account or a poetic view. What has been written here is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John was written to basically say to everyone reading the Gospels, you've seen the Messiah. You've seen God Almighty reigning supreme. You've seen him die on the cross to redeem you, and you've seen him come down and wipe your tears at your weakest moment. Now believe. Believe. Trust. Throw your life upon him. Expend your life 
upon this incredible being. That's the point of John. Now, John is written 30 years later with a lot of thoughts gone on. Teaching of the New Testament is almost closed. There's a lot of thought and, and debate the, uh, philosophically. So John, therefore, also demonstrates two important facets to Jesus Christ and John. So John is all about belief, but also it's all about the deity of God. He is the deity of Christ. He is God. John is an inclusio. John begins in John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the word. Unlike the other ones, it gives the, the, the birth narrative, right? Matthew and Luke. John, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. John 12, 41. If you want to uh, turn there, back. John 12, uh, 41. What do we read? Jesus Christ quoting Isaiah chapter 6, saying all these things, I'll read it, these things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. Jesus says, I'm the deity in Isaiah 6. And then notice how it ends. And this is the inclusio part. John 20, 28, towards the very ending of it. What's the emphasis? You know, I tell you what, I'm not going to believe this guy's real. He's not a real person. No way on earth. He couldn't be a real human. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, he couldn't be really alive. Resin, uh, from the, I saw him die, and Jesus appears, and what happens? He comes to uh, Thomas and says, reach here your hand and see my, uh, reach here your finger and see my hand. Reach here your hands and put it into my side. And be, be not unbelieving, but believing. By the way, a footnote, belief is used almost a hundred times in John, twice as many times as the other Gospels. The Gospel of John is all about belief, right? And then what, what happens with Thomas? He bows before him and says, my Lord and my God. The emphasis in John is the humanity of Christ. And you see that also his Godhead in the sense that the, uh, John focuses and emphasizes um, the fact that Jesus Christ was uh, sent from God and, and is dependent upon the Father. He is the Son. And so he is the sent one, a common theme in John. He came to fulfill his Father's will. Um, the prayer in John uh, 17, the high a priestly prayer, typically is called the filial supplication of Christ. So it's all about his, his being God. But then in John, more than any of the Gospels, Jesus Christ is pictured as a real man. He thirsts. At Lazarus' tomb, he's moved to indignation. He weeps. He grows weary. He washes the feet. In strong contrast to Mark, who is immediately, get to the, you know, now slow down when we get to the uh, crucifixion and the sufferings of Christ. John is happy to just sit back, relax, and sit at his feet. And listen to the teaching of this incredible prophet, priest, and king, Messiah, that he is. That's John. All right, so that brings us back to the opening question. Who is Jesus? Now, it's my observation that most Christians, we don't have all four in balance. For us, Jesus is this sovereign king who reigns supreme, right? And who, who has commands that you obey, and amen. He does have commands that we should obey. But that's our view of Christ. Others are, no, we're not going to focus on the commands of Scripture. We're going to focus on the sacrifice. Mark. And we praise God for his priesthood. We praise God that he is our Savior. 
Others view Jesus as, as the good old buddy in the sky who in the ha- at the end of a football game, you know, what do we say? First, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ that we won this game. As if God's redemptive purpose was fulfilled in USC beating some other team. Guys, he's, he's God. And as God, he's king. And as king, he's servant who died. And as servant who died, he meets us at our needs. And, God's, and that call, therefore, is the, the universal call of Scripture is believe in him, in him, in Jesus. So we started there. If you deny Jesus, you're going to hell. Well, what does that mean to deny him? It means if you, if you, if you, if you take Jesus as a miracle max, you've missed him. Right? Now, don't misunderstand. Our theology is in part. We're going to have uh, perverted views of Jesus Christ, um, um, out, of bound, out, of, out of emphasis views of Jesus Christ, overemphasizing. That's not why we go to hell. But are you trusting in the one Jesus Christ? That's the point of John. Who has done and is all these things. So today you have a portrait before you. I've got, it's funny, because of my study this week, I was listening to Scott lead worship and I would listen to Stuart prayer. And I was a little bit distracted, I will say that, because as he was praying, I was thinking, Matthew, he's talking about God, almighty, glorious God. If we had Matthew, Mark, Luke, John on a a, a sign with, with lights, Matthew would have lit up there, right? But Lord, we thank you that you died, Mark, for us and you saved us. And that, Lord, you care about us, Luke. Give us the grace of God to trust you, John. That you, and that, that is our life, guys. We live our lives somewhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hopefully all four of them all at once. But our hope and our prayers, my hope and prayers, as we go through this series, we're going to start next week. So in your survey, guess what we're on next week? Well, you just open it up, and you're going to see on, in, in your harmony. Next week, we'll plan on coming in time by John 1. 1 through 18, the prologue of Jesus' ministry, all right? So that'll be next week. But as you and I study, right now, this picture is in front of us. My hope and prayer is that as we walk with Christ in the course of his life, that that picture would become us, would, would, would become a part of us, such that his mind, Christ's mind, would be that which controls us. His heart would be that which impels us. His teaching would be that which would direct us. His person would be that which comforts us. His sacrifice be that which defines us. And his glory be that which delights us. May that be the net net of our study of the gospels of Christ's life in the coming weeks, months, and years. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and this fourfold witness that you've given us to Jesus Christ. Lord, we hear the description of our Savior. And I, I don't know about my brothers and sisters, my heart beats. It beats faster as I think about who you are as our King and what you've done as our Savior and how you uh, approach us as our prophet. Give us the grace, O oh Lord, to believe. And where we lack belief, help thou our unbelief that we might be a people who live on this earth as ones having a savior, a king who cares for them. Lord, it's so sad to see people in the world 
who don't have parents. Lord, it, it, it's sad to see youth who are in broken homes and, and they, they, they manifest that in their lives, in, their, in their, the way they act, the way that they live. And so often that is manifested, the same attributes are in our lives. When, Lord, we've got a Savior, we've got a family, we've got a God that we're a part of, I pray that you would give us the grace as your people to know this family, to know the Savior, and so live in light of the glory, the majesty of your being, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the time that we have left-